0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. You guys are going to have to forgive me for wearing running shoes. I, I use a treadmill desk and um, I forgot to bring my, my nice like, leather shoes. So here we are. <laughs> um, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. So let me start with just the, the radio opening. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, see the club's videos on YouTube, and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Nellie Bowles, tech and culture reporter for the New York Times, and your moderator for today's program. I'm now pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Tom Siebel, famed tech entrepreneur, chairman and CEO of C3AI, and author of the new book, Digital Transformation Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction. Big Data, Artificial Intelligence, Cloud Computing, and the Internet of Things. We've all heard of these innovations individually and their potential impacts. Tom Siebel is working on how these technologies can work in conjunction with each other to have an even greater impact. In his new book, Mr. Siebel explains how the power of these innovations can be harnessed to radically change and improve our world on a massive scale. He looks at how large enterprises such as Royal Dutch Shell, Enel, 3M, and even the U.S. Department of Defense are leveraging these technologies to predict functionality problems, decrease fuel usage, and find vulnerabilities in these systems. Mr. Siebel's current company, C3.ai, C3. isn't it? It is. C3.ai Ah, C3. AI, is described as a software platform for digital enterprise transformation. He previously served as the chairman and CEO of Siebel Systems, which merged with Oracle Corporation in 2006. Siebel Systems became a leader in application software with more than 8,000 employees in 32 countries, over 4,500 corporate customers, and an annual revenue in excess of $2 billion. We also want to thank our audience here and on the radio, television, and the internet. I'm Nellie Bowles, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in now, is adjourned. Oh, Oh my God. I read through the whole script. We're done, guys. This was a great night. It's not adjourned. Everyone stay seated. Why are we here tonight? I wanted to start. You have had a long career in Silicon Valley. You could right now be retired on your ranch. But instead, you decided to write this book. Instead, you're here. What inspired you? What do you want to say right now?
1: Well, I'm involved in the creation of a new enterprise um, uh, that's associated with a new step function in information technology that I think changes everything. And this step function involves um, the, you know, as we power into the 21st century, I think at the we have four information technology vectors that change everything. Elastic cloud computing, big data, the Internet of Things, and AI. Mm. And at the confluence of these vectors, we have this phenomenon called digital transformation. And if we look at the Information technology world, it's gone from roughly a $50 billion industry in 1980 to a $3.5 trillion industry today to maybe an $8 trillion industry in five years. And so this is rapidly accelerating. So I've been, bought, been this is my fourth decade in the information technology business. Uh, first, the early days of Oracle and then uh, Pat House and I founded a company called Siebel Systems that And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career to be in the right place at the right time on a few occasions. And so this is about assembling a team of very talented, highly energetic, well-educated people um, to introduce a new generation of software technology that promises to change everything and promises to make the world a better place. And so this is my idea of a good time. And so this is why we're doing C3. (laughs) If I could play golf, maybe I'd be playing golf, but I can't do that.
0: What inspired the book specifically?
1: Well, we began this effort in 2009. And the idea was, the, the big idea was to build a technology stack, a software stack, that would enable corporations, even the world's largest corporations, to take advantage of these technologies to design, develop, provision, and operate industrial and commercial and government-scale AI applications. And in the course of visiting customers around the world, CEOs and boards in Shanghai, Rome, Paris, London, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, beginning in 2009, 10, 11, I frequently heard CEOs and chairmen, um, our chairpersons of companies talking about this need for digital transformation, hmm. and you know, after four decades in the information technology business, I thought I had heard it all. But you know, I'm thinking digital transformation as opposed to what? As opposed to analog transformation? I mean, yeah, what doesn't is everyone it? Want what, what, what does this digital transformation? And so, as I poked at it, and you know, and tried to find out what people were talking about, it became apparent that there was really no common view, it, but it was something. It was, it was be, very important.
0: It's kind of a visceral thing. It, it, that it was, was very
1: important to them, and there was an urgency. It was something that had to be done, but they didn't quite know what it was. And so after talking to companies for eight years, whether it was State Grid, South China Grid, World um, Dutch Shell, 3M, United States Air Force, Army Futures Command— um, I spent you know eight years thinking about it, and after eight years, I think I had an idea what they 're talking about and so this book, Digital Transformation is an attempt to you know come up with or develop a common understanding of the term okay, what it means, where it came from, and how to do it
0: yeah, so I want to talk today about AI I want to ask you about your personal uh, Life gets some There's one particular story about an elephant attack that I want to know about. Um, but, but I want to start really broad, which is just kind of the state of Silicon Valley right now. The state of the tech giants. Um, we're constantly talking about this, all of us in San Francisco. This is on all of our minds. Has Silicon Valley gotten too powerful? Are these tech giants too powerful? And I know you have opinions on this and are, are involved in some of these conversations. Um, you were recently featured in a New York Times op-ed by... Um, the Kevin McCarthy tell me where do you stand on this debate what do you make of the tech giants right now Um, maybe Facebook in particular
1: (laughs) Uh, if we if we okay there's there's a lot to tease apart there okay first of all there's the question about what is AI I will answer the question what is AI and you know I think Julius Caesar used to talk about Gaul being divided into three parts. I think AI is divided into three parts. And so we have this thing called <clears throat> artificial general intelligence. This is AGI. This is the stuff of Google DeepMind. And this is the idea that we're going to develop computers that are indistinguishable from humans or perhaps even substantially smarter than humans, this concept of the singularity. Um in my opinion, that's a pretty far-fetched idea. You know, this is, this is the idea that your refrigerator is going to take over your house, okay? Oh, yeah. and, and, you know, the malevolent robot, what have you, Hal out of 2001, you know, you know the story. I think that, you know, the most powerful system that we—I I think that we will see in a very short period of time— computer systems that can do any single task better than a human being we can have a, we'll develop a computer to play have chess. That. okay go. go I and mean, that's like cook okay but the idea that we have directions a computer, to anywhere right we have the idea that we can have a computer that will play go play chess bake a cake and give you directions anywhere i don't think it's going to happen anytime soon yeah um so i don't think we need to worry about that happening candidly in our lifetimes the second gener- the second class of AI is what we do, which is commercial, industrial, and government applications, which is about building prediction engines to oh change the way that people design products, manufacture products and services, deliver products and services, and manage their companies in a way to, lower cost, increase efficiency, increase customer satisfaction, and lower, lower environmental impact, and lessen the probability of cyber attack. We can talk about that more later. The third category of AI relates to what's going on in social media. Okay. Yeah. Now we get to your question. Okay. Where we are using AI, you to manipulate, say, 2.2 billion people, I think, in, you know, very disturbing and nefarious ways. Um, I think that the social media companies, you know, have figured out how to make it manipulate people at the level of the limbic brain. This is that part of the brain that releases dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that's associated with kind of the pleasure center. It is the pleasure center of the brain. And so we have people addicted to these devices. Uh, we have people who are, you know, we have this incredible tribalism where people are, um, you know, when we search for news, as you know, on Google, or we search for news on Facebook, it doesn't give us the news. It knows what we like, so it gives us the news we like. And so if we are a white supremacist, it gives us the news that a white supremacist likes. If we're a Me Too, it gives us the Me Too movement. If we're a, If we're a Black Lives Matter person, it gives us the news that we like. And so it results in... You know this, this, this tribalism and everybody lives in an echo chamber. This,
0: this is AI being already smarter than we are.
1: Oh, like, no, I don't think so. Okay, yeah, I don't think so. It's if just it's, using if it's data. It's controlling
0: data. us, manipulating our emotions. I mean,
1: yes, but I mean, people manipulate people pretty well too. Okay, and <sighs> uh, um, and you know, people. Some people are pretty good at that. Um, <laughs> but I, I think what's going on. I mean, we're. You know, this is. <clears throat> We have people who are living in these filter bubbles, in these echo chambers, okay, that are never exposed to views other than that which they believe, okay, because their views are constantly being reinforced. They become radicalized in that perspective, whether it's being a Trump Republican or whether it's being, you know, or whether you're being a a radical Islamist. And then these media are being, these mediums are, these media are being weaponized. By bad actors, okay, like Russians, for example, as they did in the last election cycle and will in the current election cycle. I think it explains a lot of what's going on on college campuses today where people are unwilling to consider opinions that other than those that which they have. I mean, when yeah. I remember when it I went to college, that. there was a nut on every rock, right? Talking about, you know, Hare Krishna or something. And it was all part of the experience. Did you go to Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, today, they stone those people. OK, I mean, it, it, and it, it, it. Wow. They do. They burn them. I mean, come on. Oh, they're t- not t- we t- figured it, it, stones it's, what? or fire. but Yeah. Tweets. It, yeah. Tweets. I mean, look at the stuff in the news that you write about. It's pretty violent, right? They're beating people to death. Okay, not to death, but they are beating people. Um, okay, so uh, the story in the New York Times with the op-ed piece in the New York Times with Kevin McCarthy this morning, what, what he was referring to is um, uh, I met him at a social gathering and I was talking about a, a op-ed piece, a piece of fake news that I wanted to write. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the fake news story was that the attorney, that the postmaster general had done, is doing an announcement that going forward the U.S. Postal Service is going to be free. And there's going to be no cost associated with shipping products or sending mail.
0: This was your fake news plan?
1: This is the, No, this was the, this is the fake news story that I wanted to write. And it was an announcement from the, from the U.S. Postal Service. And it was going to enable us to provide much higher qualities of service to a much broader uh, uh, constituency uh-huh. and to the underprivileged and to the underserved. Uh-huh. And we're going to do the service going forward at no cost. Now, an additional service that we're going to provide is that every letter that goes through the mail system, we're going to open it and read it, okay? And so that, way, so, so that way, when we know that your grandmother is coming to visit, I mean, we can contact her, and we can offer her hotels. We can offer discount travel, okay? We can offer, you know, car service to come back and forth to the hotel and the house. And then, of course, we're going to open the packages, okay, so that if someone wants to deliver a shirt, we know that they're getting a shirt, and just think what we can do. We can, you know... We, we, can offer, actually... we can offer a matching tie and cufflinks, <laughs> and so customers will be much more happy, and the service will be for free. So that was the idea that Kevin picked up in his uh, op-ed piece in the New York Times today. You really should do that. I mean, you really should write that op-ed, like the, the hypothetical. Well, I think that's a news story. It's fake news. I just <laughs> no. don't know where to place it. Maybe the onion or um, – but... but, I mean, that's the deal we've all made. Like, that's the deal we've all made. No, I don't think anybody knows that. I, I made think that deal knows when it.
0: I use Google. When I use Gmail, I make that deal. I mean, when you do any of us know? Do any of us know what we've given over? No. And guys, be be filling out questions and stuff because I mean I, I mean I want to hear what you all want to know. Um, okay, so what's the solution? So so. Uh, where would you fall on the debate, and then we 'll get back to AI, but where I, I just kind of want to know because this is what i 'm writing about all the time i 'm obsessed with it, but where would you fall on the debate of like regulation, break up big tech what, what do we what would be your action item for these
1: Okay, as it relates to social media okay, yeah. I, okay I, I think we are in an area where the social media companies have become more powerful than the governments that regulate them yeah. and understand these people are i mean they 're really. Friends of mine, these people who run these companies. Um, the, the, that being said, these companies are more powerful than the governments that regulate them, the, these media are being weaponized by bad actors. Okay, and they're looking the other way. I think we are so far beyond do no evil. OK, we're, we're way in another category now. And we're looking the other way. Why these why our media are being weaponized, why the Russians are are manipulating people, causing foment and foreign and bad actors, potentially making it impossible to conduct a democracy. I mean, this is really troubling stuff. So. I mean, you, you don't this, like know me, you know, my, my, my political views are such I have like no use for government at all. OK, like very little use, let's say. Um, but in this particular case, I think if a government doesn't do its job, if government doesn't step up and regulate, we're going to be sorry. Now, whether this is an antitrust issue or not, that's kind of beyond my pay grade. OK, but I do think that unless this gets under control, we are going to be very sorry.
0: In in all seriousness, I mean, you you are close with the leaders of these companies. You know these people. You're in the same dinners. Like, do you bring this up? Is this something that they're – you know, a a few, you know, I think this is like talking somewhere. about
1: religion at dinner. You know, I think it's probably <laughs> it, it's it's probably best that uh, in that uh, in Nelly and in, uh, in social settings that we not talk about this because it's unlikely that we're going to reach a point of agreement.
0: Because you think and it's ruining de- potentially ruining democracy. And
1: so no, I think so. it's absolutely. That a, would make a, it I mean, if this continues. Uh, it, I mean, it's the potential that we cannot conduct a democracy. This is important stuff.
0: You were a leader in the dot-com era. What could tech giants from today or learn from the dot-com era? We don't often look back here. We don't often kind of learn from historical periods. It feels like tech companies emerge out of the ether, and then we we forget that there was ever a time before. What, What lessons could they learn from this?
1: Well, these are not the first tech giants to dominate markets. I mean, some will recall that, you know, Microsoft went through a very serious antitrust investigation when they were, in fact, engaging in, you know, unlawful, non-competitive practices very blatantly. Okay, candidly, I think Intel was doing the same thing. Mm. And so, I mean, this is not the first time that companies have behaved, behaved badly. And the government got involved and kind of toned it down a little bit. And I think this is a good time to do it again.
0: So the lesson is mostly for lawmakers. Um, Okay, so so back to AI and what's happening right now, because it's fascinating in that it's both very confusing, I think, because I can't ever really tell what's AI, what's just sort of like uh, data set. Like, I can't tell what's deep learning. It gets very confusing very quickly. I sit next to the AI reporter and try to glean what I can from his interviews.
1: Um, Well, AI is not a new idea. Okay, this goes back, you know, this goes back. I think 50 years, okay, and the, um, more than 50 years, okay, and, but what's gone on is after kind of the original thought in this field, we had this huge AI winter, Then we have the advent of these enabling technologies like elastic cloud computing that come from companies like AWS and Microsoft with Azure. And effectively what we have is, you know, infinite computing and storage capacity available for free. Hey, that's a big deal. Computers didn't used to be available for free and you didn't used to have infinite capacity. And then, you know, then, you know, the, the underlying theory. You know, behind, behind handling big data and, uh, and then advances that have been made more recently in technologies that you refer to like supervised learning, unsupervised learning, deep learning. Okay, so In essence, this is about using computers to build prediction engines. It's not that sophisticated. And we, now we can we can solve classes of problems given the underlying theory and infinite computing capacity and infinite storage capacity that were unsolvable. And so prediction engine, for example, can predict disease onset with very high levels of precision. It can predict device failure with, okay, it can predict heart failure. It can predict the onset of disease. So we can use these technologies, it complemented with this other phenomenon called the Internet of Things, okay, which is all about basically a lot of computers computing with each other, like, say, order of, you know, billions of these devices. And, so we can use them in value chains like, let's look at the power grid. This is a classic case. The power grid is the largest, most complex machine ever built. And as of the beginning of this century, it pretty much was as drawn up by uh, Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse 100 years ago. Now, this decade, that value chain is changing from the grid to the smart grid, where all of the devices in that infrastructure are being changed so that they're remotely machine addressable mm-hmm. with these things called sensors, this IoT phenomenon. So we can aggregate those data and process these data on these large grid infrastructures to basically, without getting into how it's done, increase the efficiency, lower the cost. Reduce the amount of fuel that it we takes to power. You know what's going to happen when
0: it's hot, when it's
1: cold. Increase it- the cybersecurity. Okay. Prevent device failure, like we yeah. saw in New York last week. Okay. Yeah. And reduce the greenhouse gas footprint by a factor of two. So the social and economic benefit is huge. And if we look at a grid operator like Anel in Rome, that's the largest utility in the free world, these people are looking for 6.7 billion euros in recurring annual economic, social, Mm -hmm. and economic benefit from this smart grid infrastructure. Or we look at Royal Dutch Shell, that's, of course, in the hydrocarbon business, the fifth largest company in the world, about a 300 billion euro business, where they're using AI to change everything about the way that they explore, produce, okay, predict device failure. Mm -hmm. Take an offshore oil rig, for example. I mean, that's a pretty good device to predict failure in advance because if things go bad, they go real bad, real fast. CEO goes to to prison. I mean, it's not good. Okay. And so so digital oil fields, we use AI to manufacture products more efficiently at lower cost to predict Mm -hmm. automobile failure, aircraft failure, you know, before the aircraft fails. So it's all kind of you know, in the commercial and industrial era, it's mostly goodness and light. Yeah, this I mean, is there's all very l- hungry. There, there are some strings but you attached. Can
0: also, I mean, if you have massive data sets and are using it for predictions, and are giving those predictions power, then you can do things like predictive policing. You can do things like you know, it, it can become dangerous. I mean, what what we see in China with social scoring now, which I, I don't know, do folks know about the China social scoring stuff? It it um. Do, is that mostly a yeses? No. No? Do you, to, you go for it. It, 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 it. Well,
1: in China, everybody has a social score based upon your behavior, okay, and based upon your compliance with proper behavior as dictated by the Communist Party. And everybody has a social score, and to the extent that you behave, things go well. And to the extent that you don't behave and you have a low social score, that means you can't get a loan, you can't buy a house, you can't take high speed rail. And so everybody is scored basically every millisecond. It's, it's, like it's like kind Uber, of like uh, it's like an Uber rating, but for your whole life. It's it's and Black Mirror gone wild. Okay, if you remember, but it's Black right
0: Mirror. here. Yeah, it's not. I mean. It's happening.
1: No, that's that.
0: How long till that's happening here?
1: Well, this would this would get to our social media phenomenon. And, um, you know, I I don't know that it certainly doesn't happen here by government. Okay, now it may the social media companies may enforce this themselves. I mean, if you don't have the right political attitude, they can put you in social media purgatory and they do that. Okay, so it's um, but I don't think the government does it.
0: So you think here it would be done, the social scoring would be done by companies. I mean, like, it's interesting if Google decided to do its own social scoring or Facebook decided to, that, that's how you envision it.
1: I don't find that far-fetched at all. I think they have the capability and I could, you know, I... You know, Play that out. How would that, I think what they that? did that? I mean, look at Facebook. When, it, when 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 government officials okay spoke out against them and starting asking questions about social media, what did they do? They scored them. They investigated them during an election cycle. Okay, they you know they they uh, distributed fake news okay about people like Mark Warner from Virginia. So they, I don't think it's far fetched.
0: When they say they didn't you know they didn't mean to distribute fake news, they've made all these new changes. You don't believe it, or you or what? What do you make of? where it is now. <laughs> Your face is. I feel bad for the radio listeners because like, like 80% of it is that.
1: They did it. They got caught red-handed, okay? And it's unconscionable. And, and, and I think there should be consequences. And I think there will be consequences because I think they kind of ticked off the wrong people. And one of them is this person, Mark, Mark Warner, from the senator from Virginia. And I think he's on a mission. And uh, he's, I think he is a bright and powerful guy.
0: It's um, I mean the the flip side to that. Uh, after sort of talking about or referencing predictive policing and the ways that AI and the the tools that people are building can be terrifying, there's also the reality of a kind of AI arms race that's happening right now against China. And so, I mean, what do you make of that? What where um, is that like a Crucial. Do we have to win some AI war, or is this a sort of a media story that is fake news?
1: Well, Vladimir Putin said in two thousand seventeen that whoever wins the war in AI will dominate the world. Uh, I believe that's true, and I don't believe it will be Russia. I think that we are in uh, absolute, full-on, non-kinetic warfare with China today. Um, the, you know, the first phase of this we read about in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal all the time, where they are bad actors, and particularly the Chinese and the Russians, are penetrating the United States grid infrastructure with viruses and malware, enabling them to turn the grid off, uh, penetrating the financial services infrastructure at JPMorgan Chase and other places with viruses and malware, enable them to, to basically... Uh, disrupt the the, um, the entire financial services infrastructure in the United States, uh, the Chinese have gone in and you know penetrated the United States government and stole twenty one million personnel records from the Office of Personnel Management, including everyone the personnel records of everyone who has ever applied for or been considered for security clearance so I mean if that 's not war, what is it now, as it relates to the you know the war on AI. Um, You know, it's all, you can look it up on the Wikipedia, just look up the 13th five-year plan. And the Chinese make their their intentions very clear. Today, they're spending $20 billion a year on AI research, uh, going to $60 billion a year on AI research soon to basically dominate AI. Um, Now, in the United States, so I think ultimately we have here is a test of two. Of fundamentally diametrically proposed, uh, opposed um, uh, political philosophies. In the case of China, we have a totalitarian state, a command and control economy that's mandated by the twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth plan. That's slowing. Pardon me. And an economy that's slowing. It's slowing, but they still have command. Okay, and so they're they're mandating AI research and they're getting it. And these people are very bright. They're very well trained, and they are at work now in the United States. We have this kind of very messy, democratic, you know, free market economy where the research is being done in garages in Palo Alto and storefronts in the Bronx. Now, it'll be interesting to see which system wins, but I guarantee this is most certainly a war that we do not want to lose.
0: Our system's already won, though, right? I mean, our system's already better, like the technology's better here.
1: Uh, I think they have I think we did the research here okay we 've gone from the age of discovery, okay, which very much happened in the last twenty years, I think mostly in the United States and Canada okay to the age of implementation so the technology the tools are there, so and the Chinese it was have discovered here. they might they, implement they, they have absolutely the same tools that we have okay. they are bright they are well educated they work twenty eight hours a day, and they are um, <sighs> to be feared they're playing a long game and uh, if um, there's a book that you might take a look at called Shadow War. Um, I highly recommend it about kind of what's going on right now between China, the United States, and Russia, in sea, in the air, in cyberspace, and in space.
0: Why do you take Russia out of this equation? Why Why are they not the ones you're...
1: Re- Russia's an economy Be you know, roughly the size of Italy, okay? And, and I just don't think they can play, okay? I mean, it is. I mean, that's the roughly size of the GDP in Russia. So uh, why they have a... I mean, I think... Pure evil does exist. I think this is one of the places that pure evil does exist, but I just don't think they have the the economic might to pull it off.
0: So what they've been doing more with disinformation is more just sort of social engineering rather than...
1: So, I mean, they're trying to disrupt the U.S. economy, they're, excuse me, the U.S. democracy, democratic yeah. systems. They're trying to get people to question the validity of the democratic systems, and they're doing a pretty darn good job. I mean, they have the whole Congress kind of tied up in knots questioning the validity of the democratic process, yeah. okay? And, and so I think they're succeeding at their mission.
0: Yeah. Um, Peter Thiel today said that um, he thinks that um, I know, quoting Peter Thiel, uh, that um, that Chinese nationals have, or, or that, that Chinese spies have infiltrated Silicon Valley giants and are and are sending information back or trying to undermine. What what do you make of that? I mean, is that something?
1: It's It's unquestionably true. And the uh, have they invaded Google? Yes. Have they invaded a Facebook? Yes. Okay. Have they invaded C three? Possibly. Okay. C three dot AI. And so you know, how many of these people are communist uh, party members? Who knows? Okay. And you know, are they? Are they stealing technology? Absolutely. I mean, they're engaging in massive state-sanctioned intellectual property theft. I think it's probably true at Google, and it's most certainly true at Facebook.
0: You have a pretty high-level view of this. You talk to both folks in Silicon Valley and folks in the government. If this is a war, as you phrase it, if this is a war, who is better equipped to be fighting it? Does the government have the... Wherewithal, the engineer. I mean, can they fight this, or are we going to rely? Is this like sort of we have to rely on Google to, or Alphabet to be the battalion?
1: Well, if we have to rely on Google, we are in a world of hurt. Okay, because, <laughs> because I'm not sure they're going to be on our side. Okay, and uh, the, in this, I mean, mean, I mean, how can a you know a Silicon Valley company? OK, that is basically monetizing Department of Defense investments. OK, yeah. I mean, last I checked, Google didn't invent the Internet. I think, you know, DARPA did that. OK, and uh, last I checked, you know, Google didn't invent the GPS network. I think this is a Department of Defense program. So we have people basically monetizing DOT investments, OK, to buy their houses and their their houses in Atherton and their build estates in Palo Alto okay who refused real to, uh, who refused to you know provide technology to the united states government okay and then in the same week okay they will form coalitions with the chinese okay with to i mean of all things to come up with standards for you know uh privacy of personal, personally identifiable information on the Internet. Is this a joke? Okay, these are the same people who are developing these, these social compliance scores that you referred to earlier. So here, though, the, know, you know, I think we have a funny sense of history. These are people who put um, the Thirty Years' War, the Peloponnesian Wars, and World War II in the same category of ancient history. Okay, I don't think World War II is ancient history. I think we're still, you know, living on the consequences of World War II. So it's a, I think it's, this is a horribly disturbing, and the people involved in that should be appalled.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. I mean, just, no, seriously, like as an American, I'm just curious. Um, No, but uh, what...
1: Either the free market economy works or the command and control to teller and state works, but whoever develops the best technology is going to win.
0: But D.C.'s grasp, I mean, whenever you see some of these hearings, which we always turn on in the office, whenever you see these hearings, D.C.'s grasp of Silicon Valley, of technology, is uh, alarming sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think historically, you know, I mean, I don't think, I mean, it's a, it's a fact, okay, that, you know, for some reason the United States, when push comes to shove, you know, has gotten it together and come out of nowhere. Uh, you know, look at World War II, for example, where, you know, yeah. we, we saved the world. Uh, and we did. And I think that it's likely when push comes to shove, we'll do it again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the most... This is the most patriotic night that San Francisco has ever seen.
1: <laughs> I know my social compliance score is going to go down a few it's clicks. Going to, so. I'm,
0: going to, I'm reporting you right after that. <laughs> Immediately. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... Well, I grok that. Um So where are we in the sort of... AI, you talk about, in the book, you talk about how um, technological evolution, oh shoot, I haven't been asking these, how technological evolution comes in bursts. That that it's not like a smooth curve like evolution, that it comes in, or that it is, it's, it is more like evolution, which actually wasn't a smooth curve, which was a series of um, bursts. Where are we in the AI innovation burst right now? Is, is it like the technology has basically been discovered and now we're kind of like figuring out implementation and figuring out who's going to be the best at it? Or have we, just, have, have we not even seen what this is capable of?
1: Well, I think that um, <clears throat> well, I talk in the book about mass extinction events. So the, you know, the formation of the planet you know, happened about four and a half billion years ago the first forms of life on the planet were about three and a half billion years ago. And then we all know about Charles Darwin when he wrote On the Origin of Species, and he put forth this theory that the planet was speciated through natural selection, which he saw as a continuous function, much like many people think of Moore's Law. The problem was that Darwin couldn't explain the gaps in the fossil record. And so he said, well, we, that's just we haven't found the fossils yet. And it wasn't until 1974 that an evolutionary biologist from Harvard by the name of Stephen Gould explained it through this concept that he calls punctuated equilibrium. And so he argues very convincingly in that, with that concept that uh, in the last 400 million years alone, we've had five mass extinction events on the planet where as many as 86% of the species on Earth have been eliminated. And the most recent being this KT extinction that everybody here knows about that happened, I think, about 65 million years ago when this meteor hit the Yucatan and we had massive climate change. And this is when the dinosaurs disappeared. And the dinosaurs had been a highly success, uh, successful species on the planet for order of 150 million years. And he goes on to say that so when we have these big voids in the ecosystem there'd be a mass respeciation event of new species that would fill these vacuums and in the case of the k t extinction those were mammals so that worked out well for us because these okay so it worked out pretty well now and so what the idea of the book is that advances in information technology do not happen in a continuous fashion, and that we've had step functions of information technology that are highly disruptive. Uh, Certainly the cell phone would be one, the personal computer would be one, the Internet would be one, where we had, and every time there was these changes, there were companies that went out of business and new companies that came into Mm -hmm. business. So now, if we look at what's going on in the global economy, we're going through, in the corporate world, We are going through a mass extinction event right now. In the last 18 years, 52% of the Fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the list. They're just gone. Okay, Westinghouse, Toys R Us, Sears Roebuck, gone. Kodak. and, And at the same time, you write about and others write about these new companies with new DNA that are in the news every day. That like Uber and Tesla and Airbnb and Amazon that are all about the application of these new vectors of information technology, elastic cloud computing, big data, IOT, AI focused at retailing or focused at hospitality or focused at transportation. And so Tesla, for example, is big data, AI, IOT on wheels. Now, um, so we have this mass extinction event and they, and we have, people who are very worried they don't want to become extinct and so i think what's going on and i think what's going on is people are trying to figure out how to adopt these technologies in digital transformation so they don't become the next kodak or the next seer so that they survive and there are people who are very good at that
0: we have a lot of really good questions these are super high quality Um, so I want to start with, could c three AI, which we just talked about earlier, have, have helped guarantee the power outage we saw in New York City Saturday night, Didn't, wouldn't be, would be prevented?
1: Absolutely. We do this for utilities all around the world. It's called AI-based predictive maintenance, where we use all the data coming from the enterprise informations, and uh, we do this in Enel, for so example. So you think
0: that was like, it was just a sort of data communication
1: Issue. No, it could have been addressed. Okay, had they deployed. And by the way, Con is a as it relates to the use of information technology is very advanced. Yeah. Okay, as far as global utilities go, particularly U.S. utilities, which are not very advanced. Okay, but absolutely, we could have used um, in in an for example. We um, use AI-based predictive maintenance for 2 million kilometers of power distribution assets, transformers, substations, reclosers, capacitive space to predict in real time of hundreds of millions of devices. What device is going to fail next? What's the probability of its failing, and why is it going to fail? So, absolutely, we could have used information technology to prevent that outage. We could have used uh, this this same information technology to prevent the fires, okay, from the transmissions burning at you know right here in River City, okay, at at PG and E.
0: Can you name some enterprise companies that represent successful digital transformations and describe the hurdles or internal cultural barriers they had to overcome and did?
1: Great question. Well, I would say Enel, again, is a, is a, is a great use case. United States Air Force to for predictive maintenance for aircraft. Enel for smart grid analytics. NG in Paris for smart grid analytics. Royal Dutch Shell using, you know, what we call digital oil fields to use A.I., to um, improve the processes of upstream, downstream, and midstream uh, activities to deliver petrochemicals cheaper, more safely, at lower environmental impact. Um, And so... And and now they're looking for 6.7 billion euros in recurring economic Hmm. benefit. At the United States Air Force, the secretary Air Air Force, which Heather Wilson, okay, is
0: using. Oh yeah, get into the weeds a little bit. The cultural, the kind of, who uh, explain how a cultural shift happened inside a company? Or I think this is probably someone who wants. That's the hard part.
1: Okay, I would say that's the hard part. Okay, uh, I believe that we are trivializing the application of these systems. There were some very difficult problems that we had to solve, and they are now solved. As it relates to aggregating large data sets, processing the, the data at millions of transactions per second, and applying AI to substantial economic benefit. Now, let's look at a company like Enel. And now has 77,000 employees in 60 countries. OK, there, excuse me, in 40 countries. OK, almost all of which are socialist countries. Okay, all have labor, you know, very strong labor governments. All these people have labor contracts. They have workers. They have workers uh, uh, councils. Their contracts say, you know, the, the, the contracts say exactly what they do. Hauling the work, what they do from 9 in the morning to 11 when they take a lunch break until 3, and then what they do from 3 to 5, okay, (laughs) they, you know, they, you know, got to be careful here, this is being recorded, Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, and it's, okay, now, when we deploy AI into these systems, we change everything about people's jobs, what they do, how they maintain things, how they operate things. So this involves... How did the union feel about yeah, that? This involves renegotiating labor contracts. Okay, this and people don't like change, okay, and people are threatened by this technology because it does, you know, some jobs are jeopardized, and labor unions aren't not real big on that. Okay, so we have to renegotiate labor contracts, we have to retrain employees. I think Amazon is now the leader in that. We have to, you know, we have to retrain people, we have to change compensation policies, we have to change management practices. So I'd say, the change management is really the hard part, uh, and yeah. we 're trivializing i think the 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 the, the, the technical burdens uh, have been overcome we 've solved the problem
0: so now it's a it's a cultural
1: it's a change management and it's really hard
0: One thing you did <clears throat> at um, at your company was you offered um, employees a first you offered to pay for their a master's in computer science. Am I getting it right? And then you also give them a bonus if they did it. So
1: yeah, we're, we're very big at C three so, on continuing education. But okay. so,
0: would this? You you would you think that private companies should basically pay for, or, or, pay for people to go and get degrees? Or like the Swedes in Sweden, there's a whole government. Um, program of course in Sweden there's a whole government program but there's a whole government program to pay for people to be retrained
1: for people at our company who want to improve their skills in computer science AI machine learning cloud computing we pay for that if they want to go get an advanced degree okay in computer science or data science we pay for that okay not only do we pay for that after they get their degree we give them a $25,000 Twenty-five thousand dollars bonus, a fifteen percent increase in compensation, and an additional equity grant. So we do everything we can to continue to to encourage continuing education, so people can advance their careers, become better at what they do, become more confident and okay, and and, okay, and uh, uh, self reliant, and serve customers better. So I think that in, I but think the companies, companies can't success- afford that. Oh, most companies, it's it's the, in our company, the is the best investment we've ever made, and I think that I think companies going forward can't afford not to do it.
0: You've got a rally going here. What are your thoughts on facial recognition software,
1: good or evil? It's scary. Facial recognition software is, is, is scary. It's very easily gamed. Uh, for example, so th- this is something to be afraid of, okay? particularly as it relates to surveillance, Okay, to government systems, uh, to law enforcement. Um, MITRE Corporation has published a paper where they have uh, now developed a technology where they have a pin that you wear on your lapel. And if you wear this pin and lapel, virtually every facial te- uh, recognition technology on the planet will recognize you as the CEO of MITRE. Okay? Okay. And and I understand as it relates to autonomous driving, I understand now we have stickers that you can put on stop signs that make the stop sign invisible to the autonomous vehicle. So oh, this is terrifying. Is, yes. So this is terrifying stuff. So I would be. This is something I think I would be very concerned about, uh, and uh, i always
0: I get freaked out when I go to someone 's house and they have one of those ring doorbells because you know it's a video camera pointing at your face, and the video is fed to all sorts of countries where they 're analyzing it and doing you using facial recognition technology and i 'm like, I just came for dinner
1: be afraid like. Be afraid. and Plus, they have their Amazon speaker that's listening to you. Yeah, They're I feel like I'm, like I'm like my grandma. I'm like holding and up hand. And they have their Nest camera that's recording all the video, all the intellectual property of which belongs to Google. And so be afraid. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I already am.
1: <laughs> it's scary.
0: But what, I mean, OK, so let's say all of us go to homes probably would ring doorbells for dinner. What do, we, what do we do? Should we wear a little sticker that's going to confuse it? Or do we just resign ourselves to it? Or do we make new friends? Or,
1: I had, I had lunch recently at MIT with uh, 27 graduate students who were you know, in basically the top five students in each of their class at MIT in information technologies. These were pretty Look, bright just people. just told them to stop. And we were having lunch, and I know these people through a program that we're involved in together. And, uh, you know, at one point in time, we're having a conversation. I said, how many people, how many of you think your phone is listening to you? Okay, three quarters of them raised their hand. It's scary out there.
0: (laughs) This is not helping. Instagram definitely listens to me, though, for sure. Because I I will be like talking about something like I think I mentioned Gillibrand's name once and now everything is and then like you Jill see Brand. the ad it's okay. all Gillibrand
1: I, I mean we were well, I mean we were having dinner uh, Stacy and I were having dinner with a, with a couple in uh, Menlo Park about uh, Redwood City actually about three months ago and in the course of the conversation you know I raised the I started talking about some book that was published 30 years ago that I'm the only person in the world that ever read, okay? And, the, um, and some obscure topic. And then we get home that night and our computers are next to each other on, the, you know, on, on a long table. And she turns on her computer, breaks up the Google page, and there's an ad for that book. I mean, come on. I mean, how is this possible? Happened.
0: Show of hands, how many people think their phones are listening to them? Okay, we're, we're at about half. Um, we're, we're talking about the negative effects of big data and AI. Could you please talk about the benefits and new cultures that might emerge from this technology? I love the idea of new cultures that might emerge from AI technology.
1: Well, we're seeing new cultures on the Internet. OK, excuse me, in social media that I'm not sure are good. I mean, all this tribalism. And, yeah. OK. And, you know, and the consequences are, you know teen suicide okay massive uh un- unprecedented levels of depression people who make it through high school and college without ever having a date so i think that you know the incels gonna, uh, i'm sorry
0: the incels you heard about this
1: no no oh it's
0: i'll tell you later it's too upsetting
1: okay <laughs> okay it's, it's so a we're so we're seeing many negative consequences today now some of the applications that i talked about are socially i mean let's talk about precision health Precision Health will be the largest commercial application of AI. And we, for example, can take the uh, healthcare records of the population of the United States, roughly 330 million people, radiology, pharmacology, healthcare history, genome sequence, and aggregate those data into a unified, federated image. And then we can po- apply. AI, machine learning, to do things like disease prediction. For example, we can predict with very high levels of precision who will be diagnosed with, name the disease in the next five years, say diabetes. And what are the the social benefits of that? Well, they're enormous. By knowing who's going to be diagnosed with diabetes in the next five years, we can can intervene, deal with these people clinically, and avoid the diagnosis. So the social and economic benefits are obvious. Um, We'll also have... Very soon, and we all know this, genome-specific medical protocols that are highly efficacious. We'll have – I don't think we'll be replacing um, physicians with AI uh, engines like the the IBM ads would lead us to believe. But I think unquestionably we'll have – AI assistive medicine for radiology and diagnosis and whatnot. So the net is, you know, we'll have lower cost health care, people will live longer, people will live healthier. Now what's now what's the downside? Okay. Here we have either your insurance company, or even worse, the United States government has all these data. Okay? And they know, you know, that you know, that perhaps one or both of us is going to be diagnosed with a with a don't give me something bad. with a with a terminal disease in the next three three years. What are they going to do with those data? Okay. The idea that that all these corporations are going to act uh, re- responsibly is I mean I mean, see Facebook for details, it's not gonna happen. Okay, now the you know, but what, how are these data gonna be used? Are they gonna be used to set rates? Okay, who cares about pre existing conditions when we know what you're gonna come down with in four years? Okay.
0: Well you will
1: it be used to will it be used to withhold health care in situations where the government or the insurance company decides that it's not you know, doesn't make economic sense to treat the patient, it will. So these are, you know, this, the, there are serious economic, I mean, social implications of the use of these, um, of the use of AI that we need to anticipate. So... I mean, this is why we have laws. Like, this is why we... Yeah, but government tends to regulate too late. I mean, let's think about this. You can draw... You know, with every major technological advance, there have been, you know, I think massive benefits and massive and many deleterious consequences. So let's take the steam engine and the jacquard loom. Okay. Out of that we got the Industrial Revolution. A lot of people would argue that the Industrial Revolution was a good thing. I actually think it was. Okay. At the same time, you could draw a straight line between the the steam engine and the Jacquard loom and okay, child labor, okay, World War One, World War Two, Communism. Now so we don't tend to deal with these things until the negative consequences, until we're very reactive. I think this is an area where we need to start thinking about what the adverse consequences will be. And before we have to have, before we have to live there, before we have to live there.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, well, and, yeah. Insurance companies already could. I mean, they, 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 we have laws protecting Yeah. No, you're right. It, it won't keep up. Um, so for, for the person who wanted the positive, I'm so sorry.
1: I'm so sorry.
0: Um, here's someone who wanted us to talk about China more. If you want to answer it, why have we or are we helping the Chinese so much? Why are we helping? Why are it's- we helping the Chinese so much?
1: Well, you know, it might be a good question as it relates to education. Okay, I mean, we, you know, you do, we we pay, you know, it's year tax dollars that are, you know, educating these people to go back and, you know, engage in warfare. And, you know, we won't let them stay here and work. Um, so I'm not sure.
0: I think I may know your answer for this, but what role do you think public education plays in guaranteeing a democracy can function in today's technology era and going forward?
1: Oh, I think there's I think public education is hugely important. And this goes back to Thomas Jefferson. I think that, you know, a well-informed public is, you know, is, you know, essential To the ability to conduct a democracy. And so I think public education is hugely important. We're not investing enough. And we invest more, substantially more in California, for example, in running the prison system than we do in running the education system. This is crazy.
0: Are you running for office or is this. I mean, listen, Tom Steyer just threw his hat in the ring,
1: so... No? (laughs) Tom's a good guy, he's a friend of mine, you know. He's probably here, actually.
0: (laughs) Gosh, I can't read this person's handwriting, but here, I can read this one. Um, what are your views on the role of location technology in AI? Do you worry about that? I mean, we talked about facial recognition, but is, does location technology worry you in the same way? I think your what, what telephone is, is
1: recording where you are every eight minutes, okay? Yeah. Okay, so you But should I
0: be worried about that? Because I don't worry about that.
1: You— I don't want anybody to know where I was every eight minutes for the last five years. I have a problem with that, okay? And, and your phone is recording that, okay? And there is a record of every place that you've been for the last three years. And I personally, I prefer that that <laughs> remain private.
0: Okay. So that answers your question. Okay, the last two questions I want to ask you. I want to ask you to tell me one story that I found on your Wikipedia that I just really wanted to ask you about. <laughs> Um, which is you survived a, a an elephant attack. And actually, so tell me, tell me what happened. What, how did this?
1: Okay, so um, my wife and daughters wanted to go on safari. And so we went to safari to Tanzania. And after about three days in driving around Tanzania, which is, I don't know if you've been there. It's just a big desert with a couple of mud holes. Um, and, uh, and lots of I wildebeest. Lots of wildebeest. Um, they, my wife and daughters got got bored and wanted to take a day off. And one of the, one of the, um, features of this place that we're staying, uh, in the Serengeti is that they featured a walking safari. And so I asked our guide, Lee Fuller, Lee, is it okay if we go out a walking safari tomorrow? And he says, absolutely. Meet me at 6.30 for breakfast. So I meet him at 6.30 for breakfast. The way these tented camps are, there's kind of a big mud hole out there with some water in it. Water's a very scarce thing there where all the animals come at congregate. The worst description I've ever heard So of. It's, it's not a very pretty place. I mean, it's, so just, it's just a desert. Now, the, uh, so he explains to me, and Lee Fuller kind of has it all going on. You know, he's got the accent. He's about 6'3", maybe 220. He's got the hat. He's got the get-up. He's got the whole deal going. And he explains to me, well, Mr. Siebel, I'm going to be carrying a double-barrel 470 rifle. Well, that 470 rifle, double-barrel. That 470 charge is about the size of a roll of dimes. Okay, it'll stop an elephant in its track at maybe 100 meters. And I was going to be carrying a Nikon camera, but he explains that (laughs) if we get charged by an animal, it's very important that you don't run. Because if you run, this is not going to end well for us. Okay. So we go out at daybreak. There's not a breath of wind. And we go out and kind of skirt around a herd of Cape buffalo, which are pretty bad actors, if you've ever seen a herd of Cape buffalo. And then about 10 minutes later, we come upon a herd of elephants, about 200 meters out there, about 15 of them, half adults and half juveniles and there happened to be a stand of trees there and there's not a breath of wind and it's about daybreak and they're kind of ripping branches off trees the way that we do and we just stood there and watched them and the wind must have for about seven minutes and the wind must have shifted or something so there's me the guide and then the elephants and the guide was i would say 10 meters in front of me and all of a sudden this one matriarch elephant five tons of elephant okay um she leans back on her haunches, you know, her trunk goes in the ear, her ears go back, and you just hear this deafening bellow, and and then you could kind of see her like kind of focus and acquire the target, and then she takes a beeline at us. So this is five tons moving at moving at thirty five miles an hour. An elephant is, I like think, the only animal I believe on earth that has four knees. They're incredibly athletic, incredibly, um, mm-hmm. in, they're big and they're scary. So this elephant is now closing in on us. You know, 200 meters goes pretty fast at 35 miles an hour. So we have five tons at 200 meters, 100 meters, 100, I'm sorry, 150 meters, 100 meters. Guy doesn't shoot. 80 meters, 70 meters, 60 meters. Guy doesn't shoot. Meanwhile, I'm standing holding my ground and the guy's up there with the elephant. Okay. And the uh, 40 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, I'm telling you, the guy doesn't shoot. Okay. The guy shoots at 10 meters and he misses, okay? <laughs> the, and, and, and at 10 meters, an elephant is the size of this wall. Now, he misses. And then, the, so the elephant comes and takes his, you know, the guy's about 10 meters in front of me. And he, the guy, the elephant just, picks up the guide and just hurls him because he flies about, I don't know, 12 meters away, about over to that wall. I'm so and, glad I asked. And, I, and I, can hear, I can hear the air concuss out of this guy's body. And then the elephant proceeds to run up me at a full tilt and stop. I mean, stop. I mean, right here, 18 inches away. I will just never forget this moment as long as I live. I can see it. I can smell it. You know, the hair follicle, the eyeball, the trunk, the 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 hoof everything and it was like meanwhile tom's still holding his ground and the uh and and it was like okay fine what are we going to do now and um then the elephant proceeds to knock me to the ground kind of roll me punch me you know i take a tusk through my left leg he steps in my right leg my foot comes off i mean i was taking hits like you can't believe and i mean it hurt and uh uh, I mean, and 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 this is this is the truth. And, and, you know, at one point, I mean, I just can't tolerate the pain anymore, and it's like I'm being just jostled and pushed and rolled and gored. And I said, you know, please God, make this stop. Look up, elephant's gone. <laughs> Guide is over there, playing dead, lying on top of a double barrel forty seventy rifle that's loaded. <laughs> I mean, he could have gotten off seven rounds in this period of time. Okay. And so he, he knew I was dead. Okay. And he didn't want the same fate. So then I said, and I was hurt. Uh, yeah, and I said, Lee, this might be a real good time to reload that rifle. Okay. So he comes over, cuts off the backpack. And I was pretty critically injured. And uh, then he calls the lodge. They, um, they brought up a bunch of trucks and circled me. In trucks, so that you know, to try to create a perimeter that was safe. Uh, that Stacy came out. They brought Stacy out from the lodge, and I was lying there with my foot detached and my leg flayed open is, uh, this... for three and a half hours. And. I was thinking, you know, conscious thought, is that I don't have much time, so I'll keep this very short. Okay, the conscious thought was, what a miracle shock is. Because I wasn't gushing blood, and I wasn't in very much pain. How can you not be in a lot of pain, and how can you not be gushing blood? And shock, as you know, cuts off the bloodstream to your extremities. And it, and, and, and it, you know, it emits an analgesics, so you don't feel pain. So it really wasn't that bad. But I lay there for three and a half hours bleeding. Went from there to a pickup truck, pickup truck to a back of a Cessna. Cessna to Nairobi. Had surgery at the Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi. You want to be scared? Have surgery at the Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi. You are so... Okay, I had, uh, airlifted from yeah, there to San I... Jose. Um, and um, How... the, uh, 20 hours. Had 10 hours of morphine. So the last, last 10 hours were pretty long.
0: How long before you walked again after that?
1: Then in the next four years, I had 19 reconstructive surgeries and walked four years later. And so that was a character-building experience. (laughs) And went through a number of surgeons who wanted to cut off my leg, and when they did that, I would say, Okay, fine, I'll see you later. Bye. We have nothing more to talk about. And then a a team of surgeons in San Francisco actually saved my leg and uh, did some miraculous surgery. And I think the, the, the gentleman who headed that team is here, Greg Bunkey, Where are you? And uh, Gre- really Gre- Greg Bunkie is here, and uh, he is the guy who put together the team that you know. I don't see it Saved me, and um, it uh, anyhow. It's a nice thing to have behind you. <laughs> so remember, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger.
0: The Wikipedia article really undersold that story. (laughs) Um, The very last question that I want to leave everyone on is, um, would you have any advice for an engineering recent college grad on how to be part of the next innovative transformation instead of chasing its tail?
1: Yeah, if I were graduating from uh, a For the university today, I would do the same thing I did when I graduated the last time. I think there is an idea, particularly in these bubble economies, okay, that being a CEO is a genetic predisposition. It is not, okay, okay. Uh, Being a CEO is a tough job. And the issues of dealing with customers, dealing with people, dealing with financiers, okay, uh, uh, are, uh, you learn that through watching other people and you learn it through mistakes. So if I were graduating from college today, I would go to work with some pros. Okay. I would go to work for a company like, you know, just whatever company you think of is the most professional company out there in the pharmaceutical business. Okay. In the retailing business or in the information technology business. And I would, I would learn the skills of the, I would become a domain expert in the space. Okay, And I would learn the language and the skills of sales, marketing, finance, okay, human capital management, and then I would start the company. And I think it's a lot easier that way.
0: After you've learned everything. Okay. So now, our thanks to Tom Siebel, chairman and CEO of C3.ai and author of the new book, Digital transformation, survive and thrive in an era of mass extinction. I want to thank our audience here and on the radio. I'm Nellie Voles, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.